being here uh, today. It's uh, very thankful for that. And we've got an opportunity now to read God's Word. We're going to read from Matthew's Gospel just in, in a moment. Um, we're going to look at some questions that people came to ask the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's always good to ask questions. You know, it's very good to ask sincere, genuine questions. It uh, helps clarify um, our thinking. We learn, uh, hopefully, from the answers when we ask questions. If they are sincere and genuine questions asked at the appropriate time. And also questions probe um, the, sort of what other people might think, what we've been told. Good to ask questions. So we'd never discount that. In fact, we'd encourage asking good questions um, of people. Um, for appropriate reasons. We're coming into Matthew 22 and we're going to read today of two groups of people who ask the Lord Jesus um, questions. And it's in a section uh, where we'll see uh, in a few weeks' time, God willing, that there's a third question asked by another group and then the Lord Jesus himself, he asks a question of this group. And really what we see here is the wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ in all these answers and in the question that he asks. The sort of, if you like, the intelligentsia, so called of the day, seek to uh, ask questions that are not sincere and genuine. Um, we see the wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and we learn from it. We learn from it in his response. So let's read in Matthew chapter 22 and starting at verse 15. It says this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marvelled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, 
because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven and as for the resurrection of the dead have you not read what was said to you by God I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob he is not God of the dead but of the living and when the crowd heard it they were astonished at his teaching Amen Trust God will bless that word to us today It's two groups uh, coming to the Lord Jesus and asking questions One question, the first one it was designed to put the Lord Jesus if you like in a no-win situation Whatever the answer uh, he was going to give they thought well whatever the answer he gives we'll, uh, he'll be in trouble as a result of this we'll expand that later on so that was the idea that wasn't a genuine or a sincere question a question designed uh, to give the an- get the answer into some sort of trouble a no-win situation you know we can have those in life all the time people uh, can ask those sort of questions I was reminded of one on Thursday night, you see. Uh, we had our youth club here, and uh, it's Tom smiling, he'll like this. There were, there were seven girls sat in the back room, you see, and one of the men, Tom, not, not Tom, came in and said, they said to him, Andrew, would you date any of the seven girls in this room? Well, of course, you know, if he says yes, ooh, if he says no, Mm. We don't encourage that line of questioning, by the way. I'm just sort of illustrating the the point of a a question. You can't give a good answer and get on the right side of everyone. So Andrew just left the room. Right, so that's an example of that, really. Um, And the other one is like what we might call a straw man. A straw man. That they... Get the, the Sadducees had no belief in the resurrection, so they construct an argument which they think makes the resurrection sound absolutely foolish and absurd. And so they seek to do that and they say, well, it's foolish. Of course, what they've done, they've erected what people would call a straw man. They haven't represented the view correctly. And we have that all the time in life. You have that in the political circles. You have that in just everyday life. Someone will misrepresent what you've said, asking a question back, and uh, leaves you in a sort of situation you have to correct them. So that's what the Sadducees were doing then, this what we might call a straw man argument that they had misrepresented the teaching concerning the resurrection and what we see is the wisdom of Jesus Christ the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he answers these two groups of people and we'll see that but also we'll see for ourselves how we should act and think in this present world acting now in the society that we live in if you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven you are still a citizen of this country that you live in how you should act now and how you should think how you should think about the future so we're going to learn from that so two questions asked two scenarios that we see two episodes so first one should we pay taxes and as we notice if you can look at your bibles if you've got one there verse 15 starts out 
telling us that the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words, how to capture him in his words. They weren't interested. We see that right from the start. They're not interested in the answer, really. What they want to do is get in in some trouble because they had this hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, if we were to look at our Bibles and scan just up the way to the previous chapter, we notice that the Lord Jesus Christ had told a parable and they had perceived that this parable was about them. Look at verse uh, 45, if you can, of chapter 21. Uh, The chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables. They perceived that he was speaking about them and not in a complimentary way. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now when it comes to this present passage, uh, in Luke's Gospel, Luke reports the same things, but he gives us a little bit more information. And Luke records this, you don't need to turn to it, in verse 20 of chapter 20, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So that was the intent, to entangle the Lord Jesus Christ, to get him to say something which would either be against the Roman authorities or against the opinion of the people. And of course the question is this, shall we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Sounds quite basic, doesn't it? Shall we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, of course, as many as you might know, I'm sure all of you know, the Romans were an occupying force in the land. They hadn't been welcomed in uh, at all in Israel. They were the occupying force, and they imposed taxes uh, to finance the occupying armies in that land. Now, you could you could sort of argue to some degree the Romans being in there and all the empire actually did bring peace and brought some benefits to the people. Uh, not all benefits, but they saw, they saw they did actually see many benefits in that. There was free travel across the Roman Empire and there was relative peace. And some people say, well, that was good in God's way because that enabled later on the gospel to go out quite freely across the known world at that time. But anyway... They didn't like paying taxes. And particularly, there was this tax which, uh, well, you didn't like it in Scotland once, it's called the poll tax, you see. And uh, it wasn't called the poll tax then, but it was very similar. It was a tax on an individual, and that was hated by the people, because it indicated that Rome sort of owned the people. They were obliged to Rome, and they saw themselves as a nation belonging to God. And so they come. They come, these Pharisees, and say, what about this tax that we have to pay? Now, the trap is this, of course. Should we pay it? Now, if Jesus says no, that will go straight to Rome or to the Roman authorities, and there'll be problems for the Lord Jesus Christ as they see it. That he said no, he's a rebellious rebellious man, told us we shouldn't pay taxes. If he says yes yes you should, then of course he'll be accused of disloyalty to the Jewish Jewish nation because the vast majority thought they shouldn't pay this tax in particular. And so, there we go. Now, 
Jesus knows their motive, of course. Jesus knows their motive. You can see in verse 18, Jesus aware of their malice. They had come with these flattering words, hadn't they? We read them together. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. Well, that was all true. But they believed not one jot of that. They did not believe one jot of that. Now, to someone lesser, they would have taken that form of flattery on, undoubtedly. They would have absorbed that flattery. Maybe if it was me there, you know, I'd have absorbed that flattery. But not Christ. Not Christ. He knew their hearts intently. He knew what was on their thoughts. He could see beyond the words that they uttered. And of course that does remind us, doesn't it? That reminds each and every one of us. That no matter what we might say with our lips before others... The Lord Jesus Christ knows the hearts of each and every one of us. He knows my heart as an individual. He knows your heart as well. Exactly your thoughts, your motives and your desires. And so there's no fooling God. There's no fooling the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how high and lofty our words might be, the heart is known to him. And it is truly known to him. And so you can see it in these ones and he's very strong isn't he why put me to the test you hypocrites why put me to the test you hypocrites and of course he asks as we see for a coin to be brought to him and someone brings the coin uh, to him and he lifts it up Uh, this is a pound coin so it's not a denarius Uh, but on here we've got the queen's head and on the back something I can't recognise but the Lord Jesus Christ a, a coin is brought to him and that is a denarius the coin to pay this specific tax with And so the Lord Jesus Christ asks a very simple question, as we see there. Whose likeness and inscription is on that coin? Now the answer is obvious. Caesar's. Caesar's inscription is on there. Now one of the things why the people hated this as well is because it would often be the case, it probably was in this case, not only was it the inscription of Caesar on that, on the reverse of a coin, which you don't have on the reverse of this coin, thankfully, would be inscriptions saying that he was divine, he was God. Or he was a high priest as well. And so that coin would have been particularly hated because of the inscriptions which were seen on it. Ascribing deity to the one who was on there, this Roman emperor, this Roman Caesar. That he should be worshipped. He is the high priest representative. And so that was the coin. And it was blasphemous, of course, to the people on that. Now, I'll put that coin back in my pocket so I don't lose it. So we can understand a bit why they felt that animosity towards paying this tax. And they didn't particularly like this coin with Caesar's head on it and the inscription on the back. But what are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to them? Well, many of us have heard them well. Render or give. Maybe I'll phrase it give. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to give to God the things that are God's. The Lord Jesus Christ in that one statement 
It doesn't say yes or no to their question, but gives very clear instruction to them and to us to live in this world. You know, the Christian has dual citizenship. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know that your citizenship is in heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. There's no doubt about that. But also you are citizens in the country in which you live, in this case Scotland or the United Kingdom, we could say. And so he says to these people, you are to give to the ruling authorities in the land what is due to them. But you are due to give to God what is due to God. Now if we just bring that to the present day, if I might. As citizens of a country... We are responsible, everyone is responsible, to obey and financially support the human government. We're not to speak evil of the rulers over us. Scripture makes that clear. We're not not to work to overthrow and rebel against the government. In fact, we're told to pray about it. But as a citizen of heaven... There's very clear instruction, if there is a conflict between the two, the government of the land and what God says to do, then it is to obey God. Loyalty to God. Loyalty to God. That is for the believer. And so Jesus made no exceptions here. I mean, the Roman government, with their blasphemous uh, coins that they had, and their philosophy and their ideology, was blasphemous. But Jesus said, right, There is no exceptions with regard to this paying of tax. In fact, in God's word, the words of God himself in Romans 13 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Let's just stop there for a moment. See, God is sovereign over everything in this world. And what we've read there is this, that we are to be subject, everyone, to the governing authorities that are over us. There is no authority except from God. So every ruler has been placed there by God and has a responsibility towards God in how they rule and will be answerable for that one day, undoubtedly. And everything, every authority has been instituted by God. Elsewhere, Peter could write to Christians, be subject for the Lord's sake. Do this for God's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Whether it be an emperor, a supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so the Lord Jesus Christ... Here is consistent, obviously, with what Scripture teaches. That's what Scripture teaches, that we are to render to the governing authorities that which is due to them. And that's the same, that is a responsibility of every Christian to do that, particularly because they recognise that these have been put in place by God. Now, oftentimes when we quote that verse... If you've heard it quoted, what is often sort of left out or just skipped over is the second part, which is hugely important. Hugely important. And give to gods the things 
that our gods. Give to God the things that are God. How are we to live in this present world? Yes, give to the governing authorities what is due to them. But the call is to give to God that which is due to him. The emperors did demand worship at times. The emperors did demand worship. There was one day each year at least that the people were called uh, to take incense and to sprinkle it and utter this statement, Caesar is Lord. Well that was blasphemous. Jesus Christ is Lord. And so they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't be subject to that instruction to do that. And many lost their lives as a result that on that one day they wouldn't do that because they weren't going to say such a blasphemous statement. God is the one who should be worshipped and worship should be given to him alone. And so when those rules are in conflict from the government and what God says, then it's always to obey God. And God is to be worshipped. All praise should be due to him. God is a saving God. He sent his son, whom we've read about, into this world. He sent his son into this world, ultimately to take the penalty for our sin upon the cross. And there is trust in him alone, Jesus Christ, that leads to eternal life. And God must be praised for that. God seeks worshippers. The Lord Jesus Christ said in John chapter 4, you might remember that uh, time when the Lord Jesus Christ went to a woman at a well. And there she was in the middle of the day drawing the water from the well. And amidst the conversation, the Lord Jesus Christ says this, the Father seeks worshippers. And those who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. And so we are designed to function as to worship God and to give him all the praise for his goodness towards us. But scripture says that we live naturally in rebellion to him. We wouldn't give to God naturally that which is due to him. The worship and the praise and the thanksgiving Believing that somehow the things that we have are due to ourselves. Maybe believing that somehow we can do something to merit our goodness in his sight. And all such belief like that is, is wrong. God demands total worship and is rightfully should come to him. So if we don't give him that, we are in rebellion against him. And so the Lord Jesus Christ says, give to God the things that are God's. See on that coin on that coin there was the inscription of Caesar. It resembles Caesar. On each of you on each of you is the image of God. On each of you. Man was created in the image of God. Right at the start Adam was created. Let us make man in our image. 
and so you're not here mankind is not a fluke of nature and the, the complexity of our bodies the fine tuning of our bodies is not just some enormous chance that has somehow happened it's by God's design and we were, mankind was created to image God to resemble God in some ways and to enjoy communion with God now sin has marred that image Sin has marred that image. But mentally, morally, socially, we were created in the image of God. We have been given reason. We have been given intellect. We have been given rational minds where we can think. We understand good and evil. We are called to praise good and to hate evil. And God has put his law within our own hearts. The Bible tells us that. To know that is right and wrong. Now our consciences can be dulled and seared. And socially, we are called to be in communion with each other. To enjoy friendship. To enjoy relationship. You remember, let us make man in our image. See, God is, is one, but there's three within that trinity. And he has made man to commune together and to commune with him. That's why lockdown was so bad for so many people, wasn't it? To live in isolation is not good for us, and it's against how we should live. We're designed to live in community and to enjoy that community. And we're designed to live in community, if it were, relationship with God. Sin has taken that away between us and God but through faith in Jesus Christ that can be restored and we can, we will be remade into the image of Jesus Christ so that is the work of God he is a saving God he is a God who rightfully demands our worship that is how we are designed to function naturally we're apart from that but we can be right with God and so what we see that day what we see that day when Jesus makes that statement, off they go, they marveled, they left him and went away. But it's almost immediately, isn't it, we go on to this next section, which is about the future. The same day, the Sadducees. Now there's one thing we need to know about the Sadducees today, they believe there was no resurrection. That was why they were sad, you see. And... Um, this life was it. This life was it. There was nothing else. There was nothing else at all. You live it, you're in the box or you're in the ground, done. You're fertiliser. That was their belief. And so they understood that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke about a resurrection of the dead. A resurrection of the dead. There was the belief that there was a resurrection. And so they come to him with this scenario which they think is going to absolutely demolish and make the resurrection look absurd. It's going to be so absurd. And they, um, now this will sound strange to some of us, I understand this. They say, as you read in verse 24, Moses said... If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring or children for his brother. Now that was called the Leverite marriage, that was true. Uh, that was actually what was said. So in a family, if the oldest, uh, the oldest 
son, brother, was married, uh, and um, they'd had no children. He died. Then what would happen is the second in line would then have to marry the, the, the wife. Now, you're probably glad, some of you, that you're not living in Israel. Okay, but that was the law for the country at that time. The idea was, is to keep the name going and to keep property within the family. So that's all we need to know. You can sort of think about that as as you like, but we don't need to get into that. Here was the law to keep the family name going and to keep the property and the wealth within the family, that the widow of that first person would now marry the second brother and hopefully have children with him and that would keep the name going. So they come along and they say, well, the first one, he dies. So she marries the second one, he dies. Marries the third one, he dies. Now probably if you're number four or five at this point, you're getting a bit worried, aren't you, really? I'd imagine, you know, as it comes to the wedding ceremony, you're thinking, oh, I'm not looking forward to this one little bit. And when you're at six and seven, then you're very concerned. But that was the idea. And then they say, well, when it comes to the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Because she's had seven, said seven husbands. What we see is Jesus refutes them. They have misrepresented the biblical teaching on the resurrection. They've misrepresented it. That's the straw man. So they've sort of laid up this and say, well, it's impossible she'll have a husband because he's had seven. But that's a misrepresentation of what scripture teaches. And Jesus directly states to them, you are wrong. There's two things you don't know. You don't know this. You do not know the scriptures which was quite a thing to say to them, of course, you do not know the power of God. Two things. You don't know the scriptures, you do not know the power of God. And firstly, he brings up how they didn't know the power of God. And with clarity, but with brevity, explains how they don't know that. Because he says, God, well, what we can say is this, God is truly able to raise the physically dead and bring them to life. And God is not restricted to bringing them back in exactly the same form as that in which they died. Okay. If God can create from the dust, can he not easily raise from the dust those who died and refashion them into glorified bodies that would be free from all sin and all its effects? The answer, yes. That's the power of God to be able to do that. The one who created the whole universe out of nothing by the very word of speaking is easily able to raise up bodies from the dead similar but different from the form in which they went in. In fact, let me just read to you um, from 1 Corinthians 15 and in verse 42. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. That's the body. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. You see, that's the power of God to be able to do that. To do that. They didn't understand that at all, they didn't want to. 
And Jesus says, in the resurrection there will be no death. So if there's no death, in that sense there's no need to procreate and have children. There'll be no need for marriage in the next life. There will be no death. And that's a wonderful prospect. There's only death in this world because of sin and its effects. There is death in this world because of sin and its effects. But there is a resurrection. There is a resurrection where there will be no death. And Jesus said, as you can read there, you will be like angels. In the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now they're like in this sense. They do not marry or be given in marriage. They will not die. He didn't say they will be angels. He says they will be like it in that sense. There will be no death and they will not marry. They might well know each other and all that. I understand that. And that is the very power of God. That God has promised and said that there will be a resurrection let me read from 1 Corinthians 15 again. For as in Adam, who's our first, if we think of our Bibles, Adam at the top, Adam and Eve, Adam was the head, so everyone's descended from Adam, everyone on this earth is descended from Adam. In Adam, all die. In Christ, if you're in Christ, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, all should be made Alive In Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Now the word picture there is like of a harvest. Of a crop coming up. And the Lord Jesus Christ was the firstfruits of that. He was raised back to life. Never to die Again, Christ is that first fruits. He is the guarantee for the believer that as Christ has risen from the dead, then every believer will rise as well from the death from dead if they die. Those who are Christ will be raised and enter into heaven, have a resurrection of life. But I need to tell you today that that doesn't include everyone. That does not include everyone. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 5, please. He spoke of two categories of resurrection. Two categories. He said this, John 5, 28 to 29. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And come out. Now please listen. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so the Lord Jesus says that there are two categories, if you like, of resurrection. A resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. Now quite simply, everyone will live forever. Everyone. The big question is this, is where? Is where? 
The resurrection of those who have done good, the good is trusting in Christ for eternal life. The evil is turning from Christ and not trusting in him alone for salvation. Now of course those who have trusted in Christ do good in God's sight and those who haven't do evil in God's sight. But at the end of Revelation we read these words when we think about a resurrection. And John saw the end of time and he says this. It's a little bit long but let me read it to you. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. When the Bible speaks about death, it's really speaking about separation. So if we think we think of death, we think how the body goes into the grave and the spirit goes elsewhere. The material part goes into the grave, the immaterial elsewhere. That's the first death. The second death is eternal separation between God and yourself. And those who haven't trusted in Jesus Christ will be raised. And their acts will be judged and be found to be guilty. And there will be a second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life contains the names of all who have trusted and will trust in Christ. And so there is a resurrection. These Sadducees wanted to deny it. People today want to deny that. Many people, maybe friends, maybe you, want to deny that there will be... This is, deny it, thinking this is it. It's not it. This is just a very, very brief time in comparison to eternity. Jesus says to him, you don't know the scriptures. I trust today, you know, as we think about this, we are not like the Sadducees and with blinded minds, but we look to scripture and see the answers there, the wisdom of Christ. It demands a response. He said to them, you know, your, your, your disbelief in the resurrection is utterly foolish utterly foolish have you not read the word of God look at this God spoke and that's in the book of Exodus I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob you know friends at that point in time Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had lived and were buried so in that sense they were gone from this earth but God said I am not I was it's not I was the God I am. These men are very still much alive. I am still their God. Your refusal to believe in the resurrection is utterly foolish based on a very clear statement of scripture that even a primary school student in lower primary school could understand. It's tenses. I am, not I was. And I still am of that. 
They are sharing in the resurrection of life. And I guess the question today is this, not I guess this is the question. What resurrection will we share in? It's a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment. The answer to that actually solely depends on what we've done with regard to Jesus Christ. Trust in him alone, you can know this, a resurrection of life. Reject him or think you're getting there by your own works, a resurrection of judgment. So in final conclusion, the wisdom of Christ comes to us today, shows us how to live and think in this present world and demands a response from each and every one of us. May God bless his word. Shall we pray? Father, we give thanks for your word. We thank you indeed. And we have a great privilege to open the pages of scripture. And we pray that, Lord, you would illuminate all our minds to give us understanding of the wisdom that comes from yourself, the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And once we understand to respond appropriately, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.